0: Hello, I'm Christina Young, and welcome back to Book Lounge with Gloucester Book Club. In tonight's episode, we'll be talking about the Booker Prize winner for 2021, The Promise, written by South African author Damon Galgut. Our book club was fortunate to be chosen by the reading agency and the book's publishers to receive some free copies of this to read and review. We also had the opportunity to talk to Clara Farmer, the book's editor. On a farm outside Pretoria, the Swart family are gathering for Ma's funeral. The younger generation, Anton and Amor, detest everything the family stand for, not least their treatment of the black woman who's worked for them her whole life. Salome was to be given her own house, her own land, yet somehow that vow is carefully ignored. As each decade passes, and the family assemble again, one question hovers over them. Can you ever escape the repercussions of a broken promise? Joining me tonight, I've got three book club members, Jo, Stella and Liz. Let's dive straight in good evening guys nice to have you along with me again the promise it's both a literal one and it's a figurative one about the characters or the the country's potential can we just explore that idea what do you think about that liz what do you think about the promise
1: well, first of all, it's an excellent title for a book. I mean, it's eye-catching. Um, it makes you want to pick it off the shelf to see what the promise is. I'm quite sure that the author intended us to believe that such a promise had been made. But I like the fact that you could, as a reader, choose to believe that it hadn't been made, um, that Amor misread it, misheard it, or was confused, so that you could almost have a parallel storyline going on. Um, If you take the meaning that I think the author intended, then it's a question of straightforward ethics. If you make a promise, are you bound by it? And I think you've got cultural variations here. Does the white South African at the time feel bound to honour a promise to someone that he regards as an inferior? That's what the promise of the book is about, I'm not bound by it because it's against everything culturally that I stand for and believe in.
2: Well, the promise, I, th- I would go for it having a more important and figurative or metaphorical meaning that the book deals with the failure of the end of apartheid and the, the failure of the promised rainbow nation to materialise and give the Black South Africans um, good opportunities and, and uh, uh, freedoms that they should be enjoying. That never comes. A lot of it is, is uh, because of the fault of post-Mandela presidents who made a complete mess of the economy and of the political system, but uh, equally a failure of the post-apartheid white South Africans to accept the end of apartheid, allow freedom to arise and, and develop. I'm
3: inclined to... Um feel that the promise was a little bit ambiguous in that when Rachel was on her deathbed, the youngest daughter, Amor, overheard this promise that her husband made. She asked him to promise to give Salome this land and the shack on this this piece of land that was on their land. It wasn't ever 100% clear whether Amor had heard it properly or whether she'd misheard it. And later on in the book, when she's discussing it with her brother, there does seem to be a little bit of um, ambiguity about whether she'd actually overheard it properly. So there is a little bit of doubt, I think, in the book about whether the promise was actually made. We go on to learn other things as well. It's just really interesting. Like At the time, the promise, if it was made at that time, um, black people couldn't actually own land. So the promise even at that point wasn't it wasn't possible to even carry out the promise yeah and as will be revealed you know as we go through I guess there are lots of sort of um stages of this until we get to the very end or oh, I don't want to make a, a plot point. <laughs> until we get to the very end where it's possible that the promise can be carried out but there's still a twist
0: it's not the only broken or unfulfilled promise in this book either as as we realize when we go through it there are other Promises, Maybe not as important as this particular one, but there are other uh, promises that are being broken. For instance, Manny promises to Amor that he'll not make her return to her boarding school that she really strongly dislikes. But he breaks that promise, doesn't he, days later and she goes back.
2: Not so much promises made and broken, but promise not fulfilled. If you take Anton, the, the eldest child of the family who at the beginning of the book is away on doing his national service. Is involved in um, action against black rioters, which blights him for the rest of his life in many ways. He's a, he's a young man of promise. He's described in that way by the book. But actually, over the course of the book, all he does is fizzle out, go downhill, mm. and end up with problems with alcohol and, and gambling and what have you.
1: There's also Astrid as well, who has converted to Catholicism and when she's murdered she actually dies in a state of mortal sin because she will not promise to stop seeing the man that she's having an affair with therefore she's refused absolution by the priest and it's a promise that she can't make therefore she's not absolved
0: That's right. And she definitely makes that promise to Father Batty in the confessional, doesn't she, Liz, at that point? So, yeah, she can't she can't carry it out. There are are some broken and unfulfilled promises throughout this book, but we can see a pattern then in the Swart family, can't we, of believing that promises need not mean anything particularly serious and not something that even if you make them you necessarily have to carry out so um you know you get the impression really that maybe that's reflecting in a way the political situation too in south africa where maybe um you know white south africans have made promises or will be making promises to black people that they won't actually be able to carry out or have any intention of carrying out
1: i Um, think it also shows the the burden of carrying what you think is the ethical responsibility of a promise. I mean, it overshadows all of Amor's life. She breaks with her family because of this unfulfilled promise. She moves away from her home. She cuts herself off because she feels she is the only person who is prepared to stand up for this promise. Mm. So it's actually quite a heavy burden, an unfulfilled promise.
0: When we get to the end of the book, promise has still not been the the big promise has still not been carried out, and we find out, don't we, that um, although it's now possible for Salome to be able to um, own land, she may not even be able to get it at the end of the book because other people have a claim to the land. And did that feel? How did that feel to you? Did you sort of think, crikey, after all that?
1: Yes, I thought that was. I mean, it worried me that Salome herself never had much of a voice. Um, Her son Lucas does, but she doesn't. Lucas is quite angry. He says to a small it's our land anyway that you're standing on. But at the end of all that, that she might lose the case in court. Somehow that adds even more injustice to it.
0: Yeah. Picking up on that point, Liz, um, lots of people who have reviewed this book have talked about the lack of voice for Salome. Was that something that you all picked up on? Would you have liked more of a, a voice for Salome in the book? And could you see why Damon Galgut didn't actually give Salome much of a voice?
2: Yeah, well, I was curious to know more about Salome. I think most people probably would be, um, yet I accept the, the reason he didn't develop that, because he wanted to show how, to the, to the eyes of the white South Africans, the blacks are invisible they don't have a story to tell, that they're not worth including in stories. So they're ignored and invisible. And that was his uh, an example of one of the aspects of the narrative voice, which we'll get on to, I'm sure, an example of his finger pointing, jabbing out to the white Africans, reading the book, saying, look you lot, look what you've done.
3: Yeah, I think um, for me, I, I did think it spoke volumes about the fact. I assumed that it indicated that the white family there would be no thought process about black people in their lives other than that these are, are peripheral people and bit actors and they don't have, just don't consider the black people at all, very much the black people in their lives and the black people they interact with. I mean, Salome had been a family made for the children anyway, their entire lives. Yeah. And they had no thoughts about, they literally had no thoughts about her. So I did feel that it really illustrated that very well. I mean, I think that came up in our discussion with Claire, didn't it, that readership got that point very quickly, whereas some other countries' readerships, it really wasn't maybe necessarily quite so obvious.
1: I think it's probably more shocking to a Western reader that Salome doesn't have a voice because we're unused to that kind of complete otherness of certain people in society but the book opens with that I think there's a sentence saying when Mars dying well Salome of course did all the jobs that were too unpleasant that her own family weren't prepared to do you know she's she's just this figure in the background that's used all the time.
2: Hmm. Actually we inherited her when we bought or when our forebears bought the farm she just came like the buildings on it came with the land so did Salome.
1: It is interesting, the difference between mother and son, because Lucas isn't quiet. Lucas makes angry comments back. Um, Perhaps that's the difference between the new generation that's growing up in South Africa at the time.
3: It's maybe a generational thing that um, Salome, her, her upbringing, her childhood and most of her adulthood were certainly lived one way with one understanding of what was going on and um of course we know thank goodness the younger generation have their own ideas.
0: It certainly did feel as if um Salome was like property to me in the book that she was owned in the same way as the land was or house was Um, and like you were saying this she was often in the kitchen and people were in the kitchen and they were talking the other you know the other members of the family were talking but Salome was just kind of you know moving around on the sidelines and no one was actually referring to her at all or talking to her you know that just you know she was invisible to them which came across really strongly i think in the book let's talk a little bit about this narrating voice in the book it was quite unusual to me um i've not read many books like this before and i think we do know a little bit of background to this don't we we know why he's particularly chosen to write the book in this way.
2: Well, yeah, I loved the the narrative voice. I felt that it bounced around cleverly everywhere. It was Galga flitting between the first person and the third person like a sort of hyperactive Greek chorus with wittier sides and and judgmental comments to the reader. A little bit like if if, um, our listeners are familiar with the TV comedy Fleabag, main character in Fleabag, turns aside to the camera and, and jokes about things and makes snarky comments. It's not normal storytelling convention. It's it's query influenced by his break to write two screenplays during the course of the writing this novel to raise money. Some people maybe find it a little irritating, but I thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: Mm. I, I thought it I thought it worked beautifully because it gave two strands of communication with the reader is what the characters were doing, and they were giving information out to the reader all the time. But there was this shadowy figure that was almost like standing at the front of the stage, whispering to the audience, well, they're saying that, but hang on, they might be saying this. Um, And I think when we spoke to the editor, she pointed out that it worked because it was juxtaposed with a very tight narrative structure, you know, the four sections, the four deaths. And then weaving in and out of this was this shadowy narrator that sometimes almost was a bit mischievous. There's a point at the end where um, Amor takes the certificate of land registry to Salome and in brackets the narrator says well of course she couldn't have already had this. It's almost as if the narrator's playing along a little bit but is admitting that that's what's happening. I
3: I felt it sort of added uh, almost a comedic element to the book and I love the way way that uh, something was described and action was described and And then playfully, there was this aside, sort of suggesting a completely different and very self serving reason for that rather noble action. And I I loved it. I I really.
0: I like the fact that some of the narration even went to the animals in the book. You know, some of them, you know, the foxes were, were saying their own thoughts and things like that. And it, it, it was really different, a really different way of writing the novel. His idea, I think, for the novel structure came to him over a semi-drunken afternoon, during which a friend described a series of funerals. And of course, we haven't talked about that, but there are four funerals in this book, aren't there? Over four decades set over four different seasons we we also know. I think I, I read that somebody described the book as four funerals and apartheid which made me laugh um, rather than four weddings and a funeral but it's you know it, it is set over these four funerals isn't it and they're different aren't they Liz all the funerals are different there's a lot of different religions also in this book.
1: I th- I think that's what struck me on a second reading that most of the first half of the section on Mars' death right at the beginning is tied up with her return to Judaism and how that is felt by the family and how it, it jars a false note with them. And then when you get to Astrid's death um, after her hijacking, you get these long sections of her conversation with the priest and her views on Catholicism and um, And the priest breaks his vow of the confessional and actually tells her husband what she'd said to him. So there's two quite hefty religious chunks in there.
0: Mm, Yes, definitely. Um, He also said that, and I quote now, it occurred to me that it would be a novel and interesting way of approaching a family saga. If the only thing you had was a small window that opened onto these four funerals and you didn't get the full trajectory of the family story, as a reader, you'd have to fill in those gaps for yourself. I'm fascinated as a writer by the edge of the map, by things that are not said. And there was a lot of that, actually, in this book. Don't you agree that we had to sort of fill in the blanks ourselves, really? Mm. Um, there was a lot of time that passed and were lots of chunks of time where we didn't really know yeah. what was going on.
1: Because there was 10 years between Mar and Pa's death and the funeral. Um, where, again, we had to make certain assumptions of what everybody was mm. doing.
0: Mm. You'd
1: given clues and signposts, but it was a 10-year gap.
0: I don't know what you thought about the humour in the book, but Lizzie just reminded me there of um, Manny Parr's death, um, how he died. <laughs> um, and he died in the sort of reptile park, didn't he? he? You know, he went to... He, he owned, I think, Parr owned... Um, or directed some sort of reptile part that people would visit.
3: So he got into a snake tank yeah. and was he trying to break a record for the number of days? And essentially he said God would protect him mm-hmm. and see him through to this however many days he had to do to break the record. I mean, it's quite surprising there even was a record for it. But <laughs> he got bitten. He got bitten by a snake and died. And And yeah... yeah quite a sort of a comical thing to throw in there that one of the deaths was by somebody who literally climbed into a snake tank okay. and believed that God would protect him mm-hmm. and unsurprisingly got bitten by a snake and died so yeah. The other part of
1: humour the which made me laugh aloud um, when Amor menstruates for the first time at her mother's funeral but what I hadn't realised was that topic is, uh, it's like a bookend. It's mentioned at the beginning at Mark's uh, Mars funeral. And on the very last page of the book, just a couple of sentences up from the end, Amor's cessation of menstruation finishes the book. And I hadn't realised that you've got menstruation of more at the beginning and end. If you look at the last page, it's just a couple of sentences up.
0: That's a really good spot. I haven't spotted that. Didn't anybody else spot that apart from mm-hmm. Liz? I, the first day you
1: bled, the day they buried Mar, and now your bleeding is over. And that's only the oh. last page of the book. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah,
2: she's having a hot flush, isn't
1: she? It's an odd pair of bookmarks, I thought, for a man to choose. Somehow mm-hmm. that's my prejudice coming out. It's more like something a woman would write.
0: Yeah, talking about characters... Which, did you have any favourite characters? Did you like the characters? Or did you not really like them at all?
2: Well, I thought I liked Amol and I felt she was, I mean, the, the obvious comment that she was selfless and saint-like in the way that she basically despised her family and its attitude towards life in South Africa and decided to abandon family and go off and, and spend her life nursing the, the, the ill, working in an AIDS ward and, and devoting herself to a caring profession like nursing.
1: I think it was difficult to actually like any of them because they were not, with the exception of a more perhaps particularly likeable characters. I think my heart went out most to Anton because his whole life was overshadowed by the fact that he killed someone whilst he was in the army. Mm. It was something that he never recovered from and in the end felt that, you know, he didn't deserve to live. Um, so though I didn't like Anton, I did feel a great deal of sorrow on behalf of the way his life could have gone. I think
3: Amore was the only character that really felt likeable, but she was sort of pitted against her family or, or in the narrative in the book she was the only one that was interested in this promise so I suppose it's it's very easy to like her more because she's the only one that was actually interested in attempting to get Salome what she felt Salome had been promised and presumably what she felt was Salome's due because she also the money after Manny died the money from that business the reptile house his share of it was divided between the three children, and I think also between the church. And her share, she didn't ever collect, and she gave that to Salome. Mm. So, in that sense, it was quite easy to like her more because she seemed quite moral, and she seemed to do the right
1: thing that we we would all want to be done. I find her quite strange, as because she's only she's only a girl, mm. when the story starts, and I try to imagine. A young girl being so consumed by this promise that she's overheard that it becomes the engine for the rest of her life. You know, not many young girls would overhear a promise and on the basis of that form all their family relationships from then onwards, you know, the falling out with her father, with her brother, her sister, moving away from home. And I wonder what it was about a more Is it unrealistic to think a young girl would act like that?
3: Well, I guess it does happen. You do sometimes, you know, you do get families where they're all sort of, let's just say, have a more traditional viewpoint. And then one of the members of the family will be quite radical and quite different. So I guess you do get it. And I feel that sometimes young people can see things in more, more black and white terms. and not almost because maybe the shades of grey that we all kind of, um, you know, have to think about. It's not always so obvious when you're young. You, it's just kind of right. It's maybe easier for something to be right or wrong. Sometimes young people can be slightly less forgiving and slightly more moralistic almost.
1: I don't really know. I, I she's don't. completely steadfast, isn't she? I mean, she's still shocked. Ten years later, when Pa's will is read... And there's no, and she's expecting it. Well, it will be put right now. And still it isn't.
3: Maybe it's not even exactly that it's to do with Salome. Maybe it's to do with that way that when you're a child and if your parents have a certain moral value, uh, you've learned that, don't you? And you you look up to your parents. if your parent, Maybe it's because if your parent makes a promise, you just absolutely believe that will happen because that's how life works. Mm -hmm. You're a child. Your parents have said something. A parent's promised something and so you just think that's going to happen.
0: Mm. I also wonder, you know there's the bit in the book right at the beginning when um, she's a young girl and she gets struck by lightning, there seems to be some sort of implication that something happened to her brain because of that, you know, electricity Mm. passing through her, maybe that's caused a change in her brain which means that she's very obsessed or very steadfast as you put it Liz, Mm. with Um, you know, this obsession that she's got about the promise that she thinks she's heard. Just going to talk a little bit about um, Damon Galgett himself. This is his ninth novel, and it's the first novel that he's written in seven years. So he's taking quite a long time to write this one. Um, His debut novel that he first published was when he was only 17. So can you imagine that, having your first novel published at that age? And when he was asked why he became a writer, he said... That he'd had lymphoma as a child and during that time he learned to associate books and stories with a certain kind of attention and comfort and um, so I, I suppose you know he was probably laid up at home for quite a long time reading i haven't read any of damon galbert's novels before um i think winning the booker prize catapults you doesn't it uh and your and your literary works into the limelight and makes you know millions more people suddenly aware of you would you feel like you wanted to read some more of his books and would you recommend this one to book clubs to read?
1: I, I mean to me this was a tour de force this book I thought it was absolutely brilliant I've recommended it to all sorts of people I think it's an excellent book for book groups because there are so many different strands that can be debated and yes I mean I hope I won't be disappointed when you've really been sort of wowed by an author the first time you've read it is sometimes you think will it be a mistake to try and read something else but I will.
3: I loved the writing style and I appreciate his previous books probably won't be in exactly the same writing style for the reasons we've talked about but I really enjoyed it and I felt somehow that he'd used quite a light touch to get really heavy subjects yeah. Um, in the book, and, and it, it, there's a lot in it. And so I really enjoyed it. I would absolutely recommend it.
2: And I think it's great for book clubs. There's so much to talk about. For me, the the elephant in the room here is the there is a comparison between this book and J.M. Um, Curtis's Disgrace. Yes. Which, which won the book 20 years before. And of course, Disgrace is to do with similar issues in South Africa immediately in the aftermath of a, the end of apartheid say so right at the start of the mandela period whereas this is disgrace and plus a generation so an interesting contrast between the two i think it would be invidious to to say which one one prefers they're different i think i've got to be honest and say in terms of the initial impression and impact the promise made a greater impact on me from reading it
0: hard to choose isn't it it's a tricky one yeah. really difficult to to come down on either side and i still can't actually because i think they're Mm. both brilliantly written novels um actually somebody called john self in the times um, describes this novel as one of the best novels of the year a book that answers the question what is a novel for really uh and his answer to that was just simply this would you do you think about it as one of the best books you've read so far this year i mean we're only in february but Let's go back in the last six
1: months. Yes, I mean, I think there are certain books that you read and you were still remembering if someone mentions them in 20 years' time, and I think this will be one. Going back to what Joe said about the, the two, Disgrace and this one, my only sadness about this one is that it is a generation on from when Disgrace was written, and there's a certain sadness that a lot that hopefully would have been achieved hasn't been achieved, whereas Disgrace, because it was written 20 years earlier, you still had the hope there. Um, Hope I'm wrong on that one.
3: It's, It's one of the most enjoyable books I've read. Yes, definitely in the last six months. I really, really enjoyed it. And yeah, I mean, it's incredibly well written. So
0: Clara Farmer, when we talked to her, definitely said that this was the time was right for Damon Golgoth to wait to win the booker with this one. He has been shortlisted in the past and he's he's been picked at at the post and it was time. It was his time to win. And so on that note, we're going to end. But I'm just going to tell you that next time we meet as a podcast team, we're going to be talking about Redhead by the side of the road, which was written by Anne Tyler in a book we read um about six eight months ago so we're going to be talking about that one thank you very much out there listeners for having patience to listen to us again and you've been listening to Gloucester Book Club's Book Lounge thanks for joining us you can find us on Spotify, Anchor FM, Google and Apple Podcasts and many more